Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Today, we have an amazing conversation between Dana Tratwine, Director of Customer Advocacy and Community Here at Pursuit, and Shane O'Connor, General Manager of Strategy and Operations at Commonwealth Bank of Australia. In this conversation, you're going to hear Shane's story, and he tells us how Commonwealth Bank changed how it works with its law firms, a process that created cost predictability and transparency in a way that they've never had before, and also how he got buy-in from what you might consider to be traditionally risk-averse stakeholders. There are tons of great lessons in this one, and I know you'll enjoy it. As Jim always says, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Welcome to wherever you're joining from. My name is Dana Troutwine. I am Director of Customer Advocacy and Community here at Pursuit. I'm joined by Shane O'Connor today. Shane's responsible for the operational aspects of the legal and group governance division. So Shane, again, thank you. I know it's very bright and early for you. Can you kick us off and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your career journey? So Commonwealth Bank is the largest bank uh, in Australia. It's been established for many years, first of all in uh, public ownership and now in private ownership. It's one of the largest companies listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And in terms of my background, I've spent all of my working career in banking. So I studied economics at university. Uh, Not long after uh, finishing that, went to London and worked uh, for a few years and came back uh, to Australia. And all of my working career, as I say, has, has been in banking. But The great thing about banking, financial services, is you can have many careers within a career. So I've had the the fortune of working in some pretty interesting places and living there, London, Edinburgh, Vietnam, and in lots of different roles. And so, you know, I started with um, more corporate banking, structured finance, but then I've moved into other, uh, you know, other leadership roles in commercial banking, money market. And more recently, strategy, process improvement, finance, and here I find myself in legal operations. So uh, you know, it seems to be a you know quite a circuitous route to get here. But when I reflect, all of those other roles have played a part in helping me execute the role that I have today, which is which is the general manager of effectively legal operations at Commonwealth Bank. And the reason that all of those roles play a part in a bank, you have, you know, many different lines of business, many different support areas, and understanding those is quite important to being effective, whatever role you have. Now, Shane, we hear you're not the you're not the first legal ops person we've heard to take a different route to getting into the the legal department. You just mentioned all of your experiences have really built on each other to give you that foundation you need to have in the legal department. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Anything in particular jump out to you? Yeah, I guess it's part of it is is the roles and part of it is the people as well. Because of course, when you are in different, you know, different areas or different divisions, you're meeting different people and you never know when those people might need your help with something. And my path into legal operations really came 
I was doing work in process improvement, Lean Six Sigma, in parts of our international. We had a number of retail international businesses, predominantly in Southeast Asia, China, Vietnam, Indonesia. We've also got a big business in New Zealand. And so I was doing work in those areas. That gave me the opportunity to go to Vietnam, where we had a retail a retail operation and an investment in, in a bank there. That was a great experience. My general counsel for the international business who uh, I've worked with in that role was based in Hong Kong, and she was asked to come back to Australia to lead what was quite a pivotal moment in in banking in Australia, we were we underwent. There was a royal commission into the, the financial services industry here. A royal commission, for those that don't know, is a, a commission of inquiry. It has wide ranging powers of investigation and production. And, and really, it was a time where the the mirror was held up to the banks, and unfortunately, you know, we, we fell short in a lot of areas. But that was a great way to reset. Um, and you know, this person needed some help more around the process of production. She was a, a, an excellent uh, a lawyer. She led that. But the demands of production for the commission were uh, very intensive. And so we needed to be able to set up and industrialise the way that we're going to produce the information to the, the commission. And that's where she came and uh, asked for help. So I'm indebted to Jackie Schrader, who uh, asked me to do that role. And it was really um, a very interesting, intensive, difficult, uh, but rewarding role. And that led into the, the legal operations. So part of that was role, part of it was was person. Excellent. That really leads me right into my next question for you, which is telling us a little bit more about what it was like creating the legal ops function at CDA. Um, mm. You talked about your your path now into legal ops. What is it like creating that actual team from the ground up? Yeah, so although Commonwealth Bank is you know, a well-established bank here, we, we didn't have a legal operations, you know, at 2019. So that's really when we created uh, we created the function. And as I said, if you think about for those that are involved in document production and discovery, there's a process that that needs to be followed to do that effectively and efficiently. And so once that commission of inquiry was finished, we then moved into what became a, a BAU, although we still had the demands of the investigations post-commission that were coming out. And so it became pretty clear that the legal function wasn't really set up to uh, respond to these demands and, and other things. And the reason why we weren't set up is we, we probably hadn't invested in the, the function or we hadn't invested in the function. We hadn't invested in the technology. The assets had been allowed to run down without, you know, sort of maintaining. Our vendor relationships were not, were not sort of governed the way that you should ordinarily govern that. And that was no one's fault. It was just that we, we hadn't, it's very difficult for, a lawyer to say, you know, sort of, you know, 5% of everyone's job is to do sort of legal operations. Difficult to do that. You really need to have a focus. And so I was asked to to um, lead that function reporting into the general counsel. And then the first sort of priority is, you know, sort of start fixing some breakpoints. But I think 
I'm indebted to general counsel at the time who was very uh, sort of aware and experienced with legal operations functions in her previous role. So uh, she was a big advocate and supporter. So I'll come back to you in a little bit, Shane, on maybe things that you would have done differently. But for now, let's talk about the things that you did well, really well. So what have been some of the goals and your high-level playbooks for achieving those goals mm. when launching this new department? Yeah, I think I think the first thing, Dana, is you know you really need to stop the noise. So you've got to sometimes you just got to fix the breakpoints. We had a an email and document management system that we hadn't we hadn't kept up to date. We hadn't invested in, and so of course that's fundamental to the to the uh, function of the legal department. But it wasn't working, you know. So it was a a real point of dissatisfaction amongst our team. And so sometimes you just got to shut down. You, 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 you're in sort of the emergency department. You've got to triage and treat the patient and the one that's the most serious. And so focus on that. And that was really just stemming the bleeding. So that's the first thing to do. And, and then it became clear that all of the audience here would know and be well aware that in the legal space, there's been so much innovation over the past, particularly the past five to 10 years you know, it was at our disposal, but at sometimes, you know, to invest, you've got to ask, you know, so it was creating, to create a, a, a sort of technology roadmap that we could see over the, the next two to five years. And also understanding that, you know, we're a small function, we can only do so much. So not trying to be too, being ambitious, but not too ambitious that we're not going to deliver. So having a technology roadmap, so first of all, fix the stem the bleeding, you know, fix the pain points, the really critical ones, and then get a technology roadmap so you can then in a methodical way go through and then year on year, then in three to four years, you look back and you say, wow, we've achieved a lot. Don't try and do it all at once. There is a progression and there's a natural order of things. Uh, and, and that's what we did. Pro tip there, do not boil the ocean. Don't. No, don't. Absolutely. You mentioned innovation and creating a technology roadmap. What does innovation look like for you in legal operations? Because I'm taking a stab here, but innovation is one of those words that can mean very different things in, in different mm. industries. Not to generalize the legal department, but the legal industry as a whole is often seen to be a little bit behind the times as far as innovation. Mm. Do you find that to be true or what does it, what does it mean to you? What does that look like generally? Look, I think that the legal industry gets, you know, gets slapped with some generalizations that, that, that aren't helpful. Not all lawyers sort of, yeah, scared of innovation, nor are all lawyers, you know, sort of at that end of the scale in terms of detail, you know, the legal industry is a big collection of, of people. And so what innovation means to me is trying new things, doing things differently, doing things that are different to what we've done in the past. Now, in the population of lawyers that we have, you know, the function here, we've got a team of about 150. That's including our secretariat function that supports the board. There's some people that are, there's some of the team that are right at the edge of trying new things and wanting to test out. And of course, but not everyone's like that. So for me, innovation is 
is trying some some new things and to solve some you know age old problems. You know, if I think of some of the innovative things that we've done, and you know, I give credit to the legal tech industry. You know, lawyers go through some processes that haven't changed that much many many years and I, I saw that with when we were you know sort of responding to that commission inquiry we needed to verify documents that were being produced and we were going about it in a really really manual way which sort of surprised me to be honest but guess what someone solved that problem you know it's a very specific problem someone solved it and we use that now because that helps you know that, that that's innovation you know, and it's usually very simple. It's a, it's a usually a elegant way to a simple problem. You know, elegant way to solve a simple problem. Yeah, I love that. With your problem solving, you know you are a really practical thinker in general. So when you are approaching a new problem like that, moving into innovation, solving one of those breakpoints, what does your typical process look like for approaching a solution mm-hmm. to that? I think that there's a couple of things that are really important. The first one is we're and my team really strong in terms of what's the data, you know, what's the data saying, you know, have we got information on it? The other thing that was quite apparent early, early in my sort of stint here, embarrassingly so, was that we really didn't have a good handle on, you know, what we're spending externally. You know, there were some things that are pretty fundamental to the running of our department that were fairly loose in terms of, you know, the, the data behind it. So it was we spent a lot of time in the first instance getting the data to support our hypothesis, you know. So that's the, the first thing, support or not support, you know, but unless you've got the data, you don't know, do you? So, so that's the first thing. And then be really clear around what's the actual problem we're trying to solve here. Is it time, cost, quality? What is it? And uh, I think if you get the problem statement clearly articulated, it really helps you solve solve for that. But you can only come up with it, in my view, if you've got the data to support it. Because we, you know, organisations, not just this one, pretty good at sort of running on anecdotes, you know, gut feel, you know, someone said this. What's great is to be able to either you know, support that hypothesis or actually disprove it with actual hard data. So would the data be the point that helps you know you are solving the right problem then? Yeah, well, it, it, I think it helps it, it, it helps us solve, it helps us to know whether we've solved the problem. That's the first thing. But yes, you know, so for example, all of our lawyers are very busy. And I'm sure that's a common theme with the audience. Up until recently, we didn't have an intake, you know, we didn't have an intake triage allocation methodology or or platform. So some people had spreadsheets, some people had nothing, email inboxes. And so, yes, everyone's busy, but what are they busy on? So without that data and without getting that information, you don't know whether they're actually busy on the right things. You know, that's 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 the starting point. So now armed with that information, you can say, well, yeah, I get you busy, but we can see now, well, these are the matters you're working on. Why is that taking so long? Is that really what, you know, we've got a, a, a really 
well-educated, experienced team here. We want them to be working on strategic matters that really matter for the bank. But you need the data to support that to see whether they are or they're not. How do you manage a successful rollout then of plan? What has worked? Yeah, so I think what we have done, I think, I think particularly well, I think the first thing is don't try and bite off too much. We're a small team, so even if we get budget for project resources to come in and help, which often we do, there's only so much capacity for change that the team can take as well. You know, so don't don't load up because the team's not going to be able to. Um, be able to absorb that change. And so you really don't get effective. You know, in my view, it's it's much better to be more methodical and roll out in a, it doesn't have to be, you know, you can't do multiple things at once, but don't overload it. Like that, that That's the first thing. The second thing is bring together a coalition of, of the willing. And what do I mean by that? We need to get representatives from all of our teams to help with the change. Uh, they're ultimately the ones that are going to be using it. So we take their advice, we take their feedback. Um, we very much form a team when we're doing particularly big change initiatives or big technology rollouts. There's representative from all the teams. And we we reward the team as one, not, not just the project team, but everyone, you know, uh, that's the other thing. And then sometimes you've got to say there's elements that you're just not going to get there focus your time on the ones that are, you know, there's people in our teams that really want the support. Sometimes don't, don't have a disproportionate amount of time trying to convince people that can't be convinced, focus on the others. And then, then what happens is sometimes they then come back to you and say, oh, we're missing out. So I think that's, you know, there are a couple of the elements that that we've done. Strong change management is really important, making sure you've got a coalition of change champions or, you know, the the sort of coalition of the willing and always, you know, strong focus project management. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like when you might be managing up? How does leadership um, typically receive change and initiatives to to innovate within the department and how do you manage their reception? I think we, you know, sort of the leadership team that reports into the GC here, one thing that we're very focused on is, you know, if we're going to say we're going to do something, we need to do it. So that means all of us, uh, you know, sort of our teams take, uh, take their guidance from us. And so, you know, that starts at the, GC level and at the leadership team, and we need to be unified in what we what we say we're going to do. And I'm fortunate that I've got a you know sort of a colleagues that are very supportive of that. They're supportive of the legal ops agenda. At the same time, we have to deliver value to them. We need to show where we're adding value to what they do. But I think it's uh, you know making sure we're all unified in you know, driving the change is, is really important and driving the technology. Awesome. Do you have um, any specific strategies for winning the hearts and minds of lawyers in particular? Mm. Yeah, look, I think lawyers like any profession are a mixed bunch. You know, there's a collection of very different 
personality types. They're not all the same. As I mentioned, what, what we'll try and do is find the areas that are, you know, we've got some really innovative, tech-savvy, forward-thinking lawyers here that, um, you know, so for example, I've, I've used the workflow example. Before we had a sort of industrialised workflow, you know, we've had teams that have built their own, taken it upon themselves. And so it's actually leveraging that expertise. And it's also, I think, important call out, and I mean call out in a, you know, sort of positive reinforcement way, the ones that are doing that. You know, who are the ones that are leading the way? Let's make sure that they get recognised by, you know, our, you know, GC, uh, get recognised at our team, sort of all hands, those types of things. Uh, because we want we want our lawyers to be excellent at providing legal advice, but we know in the 21st century they need to be much more than that. You know, if they are going to thrive in the workforce of the future, they need to be excellent lawyers, but they also need to be uh, much more than that. They need to be sort of comfortable and savvy with technology. They need to be forward thinking. They need to be able to project manage. And there's so much more to that's required of you know, a sort of a leading lawyer these days. Yeah, that, that's great that you mentioned really highlighting and spotlighting those that are doing well, that are leaning into the change, that are trying. Are there any specifics, like specific strategies to highlighting those individuals? What have you done within Commonwealth Bank to mm. highlight those individuals? Hmm. So we have a number of forums. So, so you've got your communications channels that comes from the group general council down. So, you know, they'll have uh, comms forums both in person and in writing. You know, that's a perfect example for positive reinforcement. We also have CEO awards, and you know, one of our tech initiatives within Legal won the Legal sort of CEO award, team award, and, and we made sure that that was presented to the whole group. It's not presented to just the core project team. Everyone that played a role in that was recognised because they all played an important role. It may not have been 100% of their time, but it was just as valuable because we needed their input. So, you know, you've got CEO awards, you've got uh, general counsel communications, you've got positive reinforcement with their their team uh, managers, you also have what we have here is values awards. Anyone can provide someone with a, you know, sort of a kudos values award. It's those sorts of things. You know, it doesn't take much. So the CEO award, there's a small monetary element to that, but it's not, it's not the purpose. You know, there's it's it's the recognition from the CEO. And so it doesn't need to be something that costs money or is difficult to do. Often people respond to yeah, being called out for a good job. And that's what we want to do. Yeah, of course. You always hear that people talk about negative experiences way more than positive. So any opportunity you have to really promote the positive within and, and champion those results is so important. Thanks for sharing. Um, I'm going to put a little pursuit lens now yep. on, on my next set of questions around rolling out a program like Pursuit or in your case, actually pursued, and what that change management looked like. Can you tell us in more specifics what your experience was and maybe what surprised you the most? Mm. Mm. 
So I think Pursuit's an interesting one because that's where the first company in Australia to use Pursuit. I know it's well established in the States, but that's quite a disruptive technology for the market here. You know, that's saying, but, you know, we take pride in, we want to, you know, as I said earlier, innovation is looking at things differently. And, and so the change management around Pursuit is quite different. And, and the reason I say it's different is that there's two big stakeholder groups. There's our lawyers and there's our legal panel firms. Okay. Now, both of them, uh, I'll be honest, their starting position will be, this is not great. Okay. So you're already starting from a position of, okay, they're in a defensive position. But uh, I've been an advocate of pursuit from the start because I see it was much more than just a disruptive, you know, disruptive play to the market. What it brings for our lawyers and, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously, you know, for change for both of those sets of stakeholders, explaining the value proposition. For our lawyers, okay, in the past, we've got three firms, you're sending emails to three, they're sending emails back, they've all sort of answered it in slightly different ways, they've put it somewhere and collected it, they're comparing, you know, you know even if they had a mind to who they wanted to go to, that process is still very clunky, you know, that's still very messy and inefficient. So what Pursuit can do is allow them to do that in an efficient manner. The the time it takes you to send an email to a firm to get an estimate is the same time it takes you to put it in. In fact, Pursuit, once you sort of know the platform, is probably faster. It's certainly more consistent. It's more transparent. So it's explaining that value proposition to them. The other side is the law firms. Okay, so their starting position, not exclusively defensive, but... uh, you know, some would say, oh, this is, you know, we don't like this. You know, we're, we're happy with the status quo. The value proposition for the law firm is that this allows you have an opportunity. And whenever we meet with the firms, which we do on a regular basis as part of our sort of panel arrangements, of course, law firms want, they want other business streams. They want other, you know, they want to get inroads into other lines of business. But, you know, the, you know, the firm that's strong in disputes, hasn't really had a look into the M&A team and how can they do that? Now, the old way is that, yeah, you make the introduction, they have a coffee, you know, that's sort of a little clunky. It, it is cost-free to add a firm to a pursuit RFP. You know, it doesn't, there's no additional utility, you know, there's no additional cost to that, I should say. Um, uh, and so for them, it is the ability for you to be able to, get opportunities to see other parts of the business that you just didn't get to see. Um, and also uh, it allows us to say to the firms that we just want to be transparent with you, which we absolutely do. Um, so once we explain the value proposition for both those sets of stakeholders, it's easier to then start you know, proving that value. And I think that's what we did, but it, it requires education, it requires explanation, it requires why we're doing it. For us, there's a number of reasons. So the law firms may have thought, well, this is all about cost. Well, absolutely, the data doesn't support that. Sometimes it is, but not all the time. And But what it is about is transparency and efficiency. And that's what we want to bring because we want our teams to be able to spend more time 
doing high value legal work. Can you share with us where AFAs might fit into that? So as you know, Pursuit does often promote alternative fee arrangements mm. as really effective and an efficient way to engage with your firms. Mm. Mm. Was CBA using alternative fee arrangements prior to, to starting with Pursuit? It, it was limited, very limited. Now, there is an AFA element to very small, high-volume matters that we might do with, with, with let's just call them routine, uh, small value, high volume. Okay, but for the larger, the larger matters, uh, AFAs were the exception. You know, so now we've managed to flip that. The the matters going through pursuit, the majority are AFAs because you know it allows it, it becomes easier for our lawyers to be able to to ask that. It's, it takes no additional effort to do that. Now, we're still on a journey. I've got to say we're not perfect. There's still, you know, areas where we've got to do more to educate, particularly around where there could be deviations from assumptions. How do you price that in? You know, and it can be done. We know it can be done. We just need to be better at it and we need to educate both the the law firms and also our lawyers how that might be able to be done. Because, of course, you know, there's no, you know, on complex matters, you don't know what the future holds, but you can make some assumptions. And if those assumptions change, you can change your fixed fee or your your cap fee. You know, um, so you know, I think that's still a work in progress. But there's been a, a one eighty degree shift in terms of AFA, you know, sort of usage via pursuit. I'll ask a question to you and also to the audience at the same time. We have another poll that we can launch for them. And the question for the audience is, what was the biggest challenge to your organization to using AFAs more often? And I'll ask the same. Um, I'll ask the same to you, Shane. You know, what yep. was the biggest challenge when you started to utilize AFAs? So I don't think it's necessary. I'm not sure how to start. I, I think it's very much sure, and it might be the last one there. Not sure AFAs will work with our matter types, and, and so let's break down a particular matter, it could be, you know, it could be a response to a regulatory inquiry. We don't know how many reviews of a document might be required. We don't know how many documents are going to be reviewed. And so that's the starting position. It's all a bit too uncertain. One thing that Pursuit's done for us, I think that's been really positive is it's allowed our teams to take some time. There's some structure around scoping what we're asking for. So it's back to your earlier question, Dana, around what's the problem we're trying to solve here? You know, if you sort of go into it without clearly articulating what the problem we're trying to solve is, you get a fluid answer. So the same happens in pursuit, that the structure of the questions, our team has to stop and think about what are we asking our legal providers to do for us. Okay, so that's number one. So that's a positive thing. But I think the the sort of the biggest barrier was even if I stop and do that, I don't know the scale of this problem. We're just starting out. And so that's probably where the most resistance has come from. I, I like that you address the fact, Shane, that you have to stop and think about it. And I know one of my colleagues who works very closely with CBA, that's something she's always espousing is 
the first time you're using this, you really have to stop and think through what is the problem that you are trying to solve. So it's great for you to call that out to the audience. It helps you put that critical lens on what are we really looking for from our firms. From the firm angle now, did you experience any challenges when you first started to put proposals out to them or requests for proposals rather out to them with an alternative fee arrangement suggested or requested? I think we've got a, a, a good relationship with the firms that we deal with. They know, you know, you know, they're sort of smart enough to know what our drivers are and what we need to do. And I, I, and I think, you know, certainly a number of them, their counterparts in, you know, in some cases the same firm are using this already, you know, in the States or, or in other places. So to, to say this has come completely out of the blue is, you know, is probably not quite on the right track. So I think we give them credit. They know where we're coming from. Um, obviously, they've got the same the same concerns as our legal our, our lawyers might have. We don't really know how this is going to play out. Just as it makes our lawyers have to stop and think, it really makes our law panel firms have to stop and think as well. So I think the that works in both cases. So the whole here's an estimate. You know, it's sort of, yeah, we've given it some thought, but not too much. We would rather them take a little bit more time because what we don't want, you know, it's important for us, you know, I also work very closely on the finance side of our of our function. And what we want to try and do is, is have as much certainty as probably overstating it, predictability as we can in sort of the what are the costs that are going to be coming through? So we'd rather people take a bit more time and think about it and then do a measured response in that way. You you mentioned before that pursuit is really about transparency. And for your and also that there's zero cost to inviting new firms to participate mm. in matters, maybe and potentially expanding their book of business with you. Mm. Has offering requests out with an AFA helped new firms win work or firms win work in other areas before. Absolutely. Yeah. That's without a doubt. Yeah. No doubt about that. So there's, there's firms that probably didn't have the opportunity in a particular area that have and have won work in that area. Uh, that's the reality. Now we're also very conscious. We don't want to waste the time Right. Of the firms. We don't want firms to spin their wheels. So we, we never sort of go really wide and say, well, let's just add more and more firms. That's not that's not helpful for us or for them. So we usually keep it pretty tight, tight enough that there's a bit of competitive tension in the process, but not sort of so broad that there's going to be firms just wasting their time. We don't want to do that. Um, but it has given firms the opportunity to win more work. And, you know, so they're grateful for that. And you mentioned that you do have regular, I don't know if they're QBRs, but you're having regular reviews and conversations with your key firms. Uh, yes. Anyway. And so I'm assuming that these are conversations you're having, you're talking through, they have the transparency then if they've been included in requests, yes. you're able to talk through what worked, what didn't work in each of those. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. 
Yep. So we'll we will be transparent with the firms. We tell them how many they've been, how many RFPs they've been invited to, how many they've won, what that win rate is, vis-a-vis where they, you know, sort of their natural, you know, what we'd expect them to win. You know, so you wouldn't expect a firm to win every matter. So are you higher or lower than the average and the median? We tell them that, and uh, then we also tell them the reasons why, you know, and often that allows us to dispel the myth that it's all about price because it's not. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. Um, And so we can say, you know, these are the amount of matters you've been invited to, this is what you've won. The ones you haven't won are due to these reasons. And once again, we're pointing to a fact base. So to dispel myths that, that that get created without the data to support that argument. Yeah, it's having the data. The data is backing mm. you for all of those conversations. Uh, I have another question on AFAs for you. Have there been any instances where after the reflection from your team and maybe putting that request out to any firms, have you collectively decided, you know what, for this particular work, an AFA does not fit for this situation? Yep. I, I don't know if you're able to, but could you tell us a bit what, a, what that looked like? Yeah, there, there might be, look, what we try and do, look, there's times where uh, it makes sense for a firm that has the history of a particular matter to continue with the next stage of the matter. Now, and sometimes that is, sometimes we'll say, okay, that, that's that's fine, but we want to we wanna fix or a cap fee. But other times there, there are circumstances that arise where sometimes that's not what we want to do, and there's various reasons for that. But our starting position is AFA. Great. Thanks, Shane. I want to come back to next looking at when you're reporting. So you have your data. Pursuit is helping you have those conversations with your firm, report to the broader organization and business about what legal and legal ops is doing. Something we talked a little bit about before was putting an executive lens on legal ops. And you shared some really great strategies with me earlier on communication across all of the different groups. I'm hoping that you can share with our audience today too, how you've juggled communicating the same message to groups with very different goals. The groups may have different goals, but the the reasons that we're doing things might be consistent across those groups anyway. So there's a benefit for lawyers, as there is for the legal firms, of having transparency. There's a benefit for lawyers, as there are for the legal firms, of being efficient in the way that we respond to things. And so, albeit the the sort of motivations of those different stakeholders are quite different. There's some common threads there that are are common across. And we keep, you know, we keep repeating, we keep repeating that message because at the end of the day, whenever we've got a matter and there's an external, there's a legal panel firm helping with us, we're both after the same goal. We, at the end of the day, that firm is engaged to help us solve a problem. That's our primary goal. The way we go about it may be different. But uh, the goal's the same, and some of the benefits of that are exactly the same as well. So it's probably not as difficult as you might think. 
That's good to know. <laughs> that's good to know. I think that's always one of those things that we're concerned. Okay, how do I position it to my leadership team compared to maybe my legal procurement team? And then maybe scariest of all to the lawyers, how do I pitch this effectively mm -hmm. across all of mm -hmm. those all of those groups and get mm -hmm. the passion that I need? Yes, yeah. Look, I think for us, you know, if I reflect, you know, strong leadership support at the GC level was very important for our, our whole technology transformation. So having, having you know, sort of a strong support at that level uh, has been critical. Um, and, you know, that allows us to, you know, so for, for, you know, stakeholders like procurement, they can see benefits, obviously, in this, in this type of approach. And you don't have to sell it to them too, too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned it a few times now, it's not always about cost and pricing, mm. but sometimes it is. Yep. And I think especially in this climate, the pressure on cost is just going to continue yep. to increase. So a, a phrase that we talked about a bit was that do more with less. What does that mean to you? Mm. So let me sort of you know, explain it a, a different way. The and you're right. You know, the environment. You know, we're we're still in an inflationary environment here. If you're running a business and a big business, there's never a time, and I can't remember a time when cost was not part of the discussion. You know, if you're running a P and L, or if you're a support area, probably more so if you're a support area, you always have to have a focus on on the cost line that's sort of a given and so that'll never go away but what we need to what we needed to do better i think was explain to stakeholders particularly senior stakeholders that the total cost of legal is not the cost of the legal team the internal legal team that's a part of the cost the total cost of legal is the cost of the legal team plus the cost of our external legal Okay, now it would be it'd be managed very, you know, different organisations manage differently. Some of it's all centralised and legal, some of it's distributed amongst the business lines. Whatever way it is, if you add them together, that's your total cost of legal. And so it's important not to just focus on, as organisations often do, just the internal. Okay, so, you know, we want to, yeah, we, we don't want you to grow headcount this year or you know we want you to squeeze costs okay you might be focused you might be solving the wrong problem there might be a you might need less effort for more reward if you look at the total cost and that's what we did and explain that and in some cases depending on what your model is that external cost is bigger than your internal cost so it doesn't make sense to just focus on one you've got to focus on both and so you know that's helpful but you've got to explain that and you're going to have the data to support that what is the you know it's no good sort of having a, a bit of an understanding of exactly what you're spending you need to know exactly what's been spent what are we spending on each of these firms each year is that going up is it going down what matters what business units need to have the data to support that now shane i think everyone's picked up on this you're a bit of a disruptive thinker here and maybe some of us don't work for 
disruptive organizations, but something you said to me a few weeks back that really stuck with me about CBA is if we don't do it, who will? Mm. When you are looking in the face of innovation, um, tell me more, tell the audience more about what you mean by that and what responsibility you feel like you have to mm. that statement. Mm. Mm. Look, I, I think, you know, for the audience, we're a, a sort of, we pride ourselves of being a leader in sort of digital banking. Um, you know, we're innovative in the way that we present banking services to our customers. Uh, but that just can't stop with the customer-facing businesses. You know, the support areas need to be on that same journey. You can't have, you know, your frontline being digital disruptors and then, you know, your support areas lagging behind. Um, the other thing is uh, the Commonwealth Bank's a big organisation. Um, you know, we have the ability to do things um, that others may not. And so, you know, we can uh, sort of go into ground if it's consistent with our strategy, which sort of digital is um, and innovation is, um, we have the license to do that, you know, within certain guardrails. So I think that puts us in a unique position that, uh, you know, we should be pushing, you know, pushing alternative ways of doing things, thinking about innovative solutions to age-old problems. Um, and that's what we're doing. And there's an equal responsibility on the support units to do that as there is to our frontline banking teams. Thanks, Shane. Got one more question for you before we jump into our, our Q&A portion. And you talked about your experience and really you have a real varied international experience as well. I'd love to know what have you learned from your experiences working across different countries and cultures and has that shaped the way that you approach problems now? Look, I think that the first thing, you know, some of those places that I've worked in are, you know, Anglo-Saxon by nature, so London and Edinburgh, uh, you know, very familiar culturally to to Australia for, you know, because of our history. But there are obviously differences there. Then you get into Asia and places like Vietnam and China and Indonesia, you know, very different again. They're quite different culturally. One thing I would say, though, is uh, the, the one thing that really stuck with me, particularly after working in Vietnam for a few years, people generally want the same things. They want sort of safety and security. They want opportunities for their children and themselves. And they want to be in a challenging and rewarding, you know, work environment. And I, I, I think that sort of cuts across. You know, we, we, we are all... You know, we're different and we're made up differently, but there's a common thread that runs through all of humanity, I think. And it's only when you work in some different places that you get to see that. Look, problem solving, you know, for those that have traveled to Asia or Japan and places like that, you really get to see different ways of solving problems in very close proximity. You know, China and Japan geographically, you know, not very far apart, so, so different. And, and of course, they're different because, you know, they're, they're, they've got different cultures, but so different to solving problems. And, uh, you know, sort of those that have had any background in 
in lean. You go to Japan and you're just delighted by the organization of the place. <laughs> you know, so uh, I always enjoy going there. It's very organized. <laughs> Still getting to the root of the problem, understanding yeah. what the problem is that you're solving and, and understanding that I love the common thread. You mentioned that a few times here. There's a common thread amongst your communication, amongst how you uh, position it to other groups. And we're all looking really for that reassurance and the same thing there. Love that. Okay, we're going to jump into a few audience questions now, Shane. Um, I do have one last question for the audience, though. So we have a final poll as well for them. But um, while we launch that, one of the uh, one of the questions that we have written in is on getting lawyers comfortable with the idea of change um, when there are maybe laggards. So what is a strategy that you've deployed in the past to get those laggards on board with change? Oh, right. So how do we get the laggards uh, yeah. on board for change? Yeah. Okay. I think there's two things there. You know, one thing is you use that carrot approach where people are being rewarded. You know, the, the people are doing the right thing are being rewarded so they can see that, you know, they're missing out. Then you can only do this second strategy if it's only a small portion. Sometimes you just got to let it go, you know, and not spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince someone to do something that you know is going to benefit them, but they get called out in reporting and things like that. So there's the positive reinforcement and, and at times you sort of say, okay, well, we'll move on. Another question we have, we talked about data a lot here. So the, yep. the question seems to have struck a chord. They wrote in that they don't have systems in place to capture all of these data insights. Where would you recommend they start to understand where the pain points might exist to even just start defining the problem. Mm. I think you got to you got to start with well, what's the you know what's the problem first? So, for me, I started with cost dollars. What's what are things costing us? Because that sort of helps define how you're going to fund your, your next steps. But uh, sometimes it's just about starting small and really. You know, uh, there's lots of different methods for data collection, and you know, the most basic one is the sort of piece of paper and you know the tally through to um, Excel spreadsheets and the like. Just got to start small, but start with one thing. Uh, you know, don't try and do everything. Great. I don't know that we have any more time. Thank you again so much, Shane, for joining us this morning. I really appreciate, and I know the audience appreciates your time. Yeah, thank you, Dana, and thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T, We'd love to hear from you.